Once again, good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. This is our How It Changes Everything teaching series. Working our way through the book of Acts, we're at chapter 17. We're going to talk about world of idols. Let me bring you up to speed. If you haven't been with us thus far, what the book of Acts is about. Uh, Here's my thesis statement that I've been using throughout this series, or our thesis statement, is that you cannot encounter the risen Savior and Lord and remain the same. You are no longer suited for a normal life once you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you begin to understand what he did for you on the cross, it forever changes your life. Thus, the book of Acts. Jesus resurrected from the grave, hung out with his disciples for some 40 days. He made a statement there. It's the theme verse for the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. And it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The word witness there literally means martyr. And what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit will work in your life in such a powerful way to reveal Jesus, reveal him to them, that your hearts will be smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you to the degree that you will be willing to even lay down your life for him. It's a pretty powerful thought when you think about it, and that's what we have uh, thus in the, in the book of Acts. And so we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and, and then it says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And we're now in that aspect of the book of the uttermost parts of the world through the apostle Paul, who was Saul, who had an encounter with the resurrected Savior and Lord and, and changed his life literally revolutionized his life and now he is a witness and he's with a team and they're going out throughout the world and we're now on his second missionary journey. Let me bring up the speed here a little bit as it relates to where we are in the story before we hit chapter 17 is that uh, chapter 16 we saw uh, where the, how the Holy Spirit was speaking to them as they were embarking upon their second missionary journey. Uh, they head into where they begin the church in Philippi. We have the, we had the three case studies of Lydia, and then the slave girl, and then uh, and then the jailer, and then they were released from prison because they were thrown in prison. Remember the rejoicing that was going on while they're in prison. They're released from prison, and then they head into, and that's where we head into chapter 17. And then we'll talk about that in a moment. But let me talk to you a little bit about idolatry, and then uh, we're going to pray. We'll look at our texts, and then we'll unpack our study here this morning. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. I know that sounds like a big statement, but it's true. Idolatry isn't one sin among many, but it's the root of all of our sins. It is the sin below the sins, the sins that we commit, the things that we do. It is the sin at the root of all of our issues. Um, Underneath our inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression is an idol. Let me say that again, just in case you didn't get that. Anytime we get stressed out, anytime we get very angry and it's inordinate, it's over the top, anytime we have depression uh, that kind of rules our lives, even to the point of being suicidal, underneath there somewhere is an idol, some kind of an idol happening. Now, I used to struggle and not know why. I've struggled a lot in my life. And even while I was teaching a lot of the Bible, I struggled didn't know why. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. And I, I still struggle, not as much as I used to. And I certainly don't struggle in any ways that would disqualify me as your pastor, okay? Just to make that very clear. Um, and so I, I have these issues that I still work through, but not near as bad as they used to be. And the truth that I'm going to share with you this morning was revolutionary to me. It, it literally changed the course of my life in a, in a very dramatic way and changed my understanding. And, and I still struggle, but I know, now know why I struggle. It's idolatry. It's at the root of those, those issues deep down. And, and so let me challenge you with this thought. If you don't know what it is that competes for your heart from God, then you don't know yourself and you're destined to stay stuck spiritually. How many would say that you got maybe a few stuck points in your life that you'd like to get through, get over, okay? How many, you know that you've got a few, but the person sitting next to you really has a lot of stuck points, even more so? Okay, don't point them out in here. Okay, some of you are pointing, pointing them out. Yeah, we all have stuck points. 
I will guarantee you that at the bottom of those stuck points is some form of idolatry. There's some sort of idol that's going on there. And so the, really the secret, the secret to change is to identify and replace your idols, your counterfeit gods, with, uh, by giving your heart to Christ. A couple of verses there on your notes you'll see 1 John 5.21. It's an interesting verse. How many have ever read 1 John? And then all of a sudden you get to the end of the book and did you notice how it abruptly ends? At the very end of the book, he just says, I mean, he talks about fellowship with God. He says, I want to increase your joy, and I want you to know this fellowship that I have. And this is the Apostle John, who was one of the 12, the closest with Jesus. And it's pretty amazing. And he, he talks about the fellowship, the relationship that we can have with Jesus. He talks about the transformation it's going to have in our life. He talks about the wholeness and the holiness that we can have, how much he loves us, and that love will overflow our lives into the lives of others as we love others. And then all of a sudden, it abruptly ends, and it says, little children, keep yourself from idols. The end. I mean, why would he do that? It's because our inability to live this fullness of life that Christ offers us is directly related to idols. He, he basic, basically just sums it all up. Keep yourself from idols. You want to live in fellowship with God? You want to experience the fullness of life that he offers? Keep yourself from idols. There's another text there that I put on your notes. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, the Apostle Paul's talking about the nation of Israel and how they were released from Egyptian bondage. And did you ever notice that they wandered around in the wilderness, never quite making it into the promised land? They stumbled around for 40 years. It would have only taken them about 15 days to get into the promised land. But he says their primary reason was their idolatry. In fact, he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, My beloved, flee from idolatry. So pretty serious stuff, would you say? Yeah, no doubt about it. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray once again. And then we're going to unpack this. We're going to work through this study. God, uh, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. You pursued us passionately through the cross. You showed us how much you cared about us. And God, there are so many things uh, in our lives that would compete for our heart from you. And God, we know that we are destined to stay stuck if we don't identify those things. So this morning, through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to identify those idols and to replace those idols by giving our hearts to you and experiencing your beauty and your glory and all that you've done for us so that we can enter more fully into the fullness of life that you offer us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So take a look at uh, Acts chapter 17. So I kind of brought you up to speed a little bit by talking to you about Acts 16. They were released from prison, and so then they head out into Thessalonica. We're going to pick up our reading this morning in verse 16. So let me just kind of summarize the first 15 verses. Um, They head into Thessalonica. Paul goes right into... Uh, the synagogue, which he typically did on the Sabbath. He began to reason with them, explaining and proving uh, this idea of Christ needing to suffer on the cross and how he rose from the dead. There were Jews that rose up that were jealous, which is a sign of idolatry. Anytime you have jealousy, sign of you've you got some idolatry working. And, and they begin to kind of get a mob of people together. There were those that believed, but then there were those that didn't believe, and they chased them out of town. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, this missionary team. They head into Berea. If you have your Bibles open, here's a good memory verse. It's 1711. Are you familiar with it? And this is what Paul says, or what uh, Luke is writing this, tells us about the people in Berea. And this is how I memorized it years ago, and that they were more noble than the Thessalonians. The people in Berea, Berea, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was teaching was truly the word of God, which I would encourage you to do. Did you know that a lot of churches don't teach the Bible? And you need to know whether or not this church is teaching the Bible. And the way that you do that is that you get a Bible and you bring it with you and you study along with us. And then when you get together with other people, you begin to study this and and begin to look to see what we're really teaching. Are we really teaching the Bible? Are we just teaching our ideas and attaching verses to it? A lot of churches do that these days. And so that's important to understand. And so he says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. And so he's reasoning with them. But there's a group from the Thessalonica church, these jealous Jews, that come in there and begin to uh, create some problems. And then they chase them out of there. And so Paul is sent ahead into Athens. And he goes on ahead to Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy. And that's where we pick up our reading in verse 16, chapter 17. We're going to walk through this. We'll walk completely through the text. I'll explain it a little bit. And then we'll take a look at our notes. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, 
His spirit was provoked. That word provoke, we're going to come back to it later on, but it means that he was both angry and sad. Kind of a complex mixture of emotions. So he was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Did you know that our city is full of idols? Not necessarily like what you would see in third world countries. I've seen many times missionaries go to third world countries and certainly if you went to India, you would see them bowing down to chicken gods. We have gods in different forms. We have a a bird god here in this valley that many people bow down to and we've built a big monument to. It's called the Cardinal. You guys know what I'm saying? Okay. That is a, that's a form of idolatry. And we're going to talk about that. Some of that can be very good, but when it moves into a position that it's not just a good thing, but an ultimate thing in our life, that's when it becomes a, a God thing, a bad thing. And so we'll talk about that. But so he saw the city. And some, a lot of times, and the reason why I needed to say that is because a lot of times we think, oh yeah, third world countries, they got a lot of idols. Most missionaries and people that would come from third world countries would come here and say, we have more idols. We have more idols in this country. They just, they have a different form. They take on a different form. And you'll see and agree with me when we understand what an idol is. So he reasoned, and what that means, that word means, he, did, he didn't just proclaim, but he, he dialogued with the people, give and take. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Stop there just for a minute. Epicurean? Epicurean means that pleasure is your God. Stoic meant uh, duty is your God. Now you've heard me use this idea of, it's very similar, Epicurean is very similar to hedonism, to where pleasure is your God. That's Epicurean philosophy, pleasure is your God. And you've often heard me say that we are to be Christian hedonist. Is that where hedonism is pleasure is your God, Christian hedonist is God is your pleasure. That's the Christian life. But pleasure was their God, and then duty was the God of the Stoic philosophers. Kind of a little bit related to the extreme left and extreme right in our culture today. And if you see, you can see a little bit of a, a glimpse of that there. Also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Keep in mind, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Seemed to be what he always taught, Jesus and the resurrection. This Christ died on the cross for us, and then he resurrected, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who live there, notice this here, next thought, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Stop there just for a minute. Take a look up here. This is what you got to understand. There's a group of, uh, I was raised in the church, and so one of the things that I saw, it's a form of idolatry, but it's not just in the church, it's also outside the church. It's called intellectualism. To where you can continue to cram your cranium full of information, and yet that information never transforms your life. doesn't change you. It's a, a little bit of it is identified in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. It's similar to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And what he's saying is that, okay, it's great that you're growing in your knowledge of God and the things of this Bible, but you can quote a lot of scriptures and know a lot about God and yet not really know God because if you really knew him, it would transform your life and you would become a more loving person. And yet there's this group of people that they're just wanting to get more information. I've actually seen Christians in the... In the Phoenix area, go from one big church to the next big church looking for the next big thing, new information, ooh, and never growing, never maturing. That's dangerous. It's just a form of intellectualism. It's another uh, idol. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way... Now, this is a beautiful statement, as he, what he says here. I memorized it a number of years ago, and it's just packed full of uh, 
just an understanding of who God is. And he's wanting them to understand this. Now keep in mind, he's talking to intellectuals here. These are people that are not familiar with the Torah or familiar with the whole idea of what the Jews were doing. So he's not going to address them from the perspective of the Bible. He's going to address them from the perspective of general revelation, creation. And, and also through personal revelation, our conscience. And you're going to see this as we unpack this. And he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of, of your worship, I found... Let me reread that. So I, he says, I perceive, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's starting right where they are. Let me explain to you this God that you say is unknown. Because they were very careful because they want to make sure they cover all the gods, need to appease all the gods if you want to have a good life. It's very... Uh, paganistic, which, by the way, some of that has infiltrated the church. That somehow I've got to appease God. I better go to church if, if, if I want him to take the heat off. And it has nothing to do with the grace of God. The grace of God is all about not you obeying and getting God's blessing, but God blesses you, therefore you obey. It's quite the opposite. To reverse that is very paganistic and very religious. But that was very common in these days, you've got to address all the gods. So he begins to talk about this unknown God. And notice what he says, starting in verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. What is he referring to him as? He's the creator. Then he goes on. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, you can't give him anything that he doesn't already have. You can't serve him. He serves you. In other words, he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. Now, he's going to get, he's going to get really, uh, really uh, specific here as he works through this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here's what he's saying here. He's just saying, you know what? You didn't choose when you were going to be born into this world. You didn't choose your family. You didn't choose the place. You didn't choose any of that. And God did that. Why? Next verse. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now let me read through this as we kind of think about this. It's pretty reflective stuff that he's saying here. He says this. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's here right now. The very fact that you can draw air into your lungs is God. He gives you that ability. Your heart is beating. That's God. The essence of life comes from God. That's what he's saying. He's all around us. He's giving us this revelation of creation and also kind of a bit of a revelation of the conscience within us. Don't you see that? Don't you, aren't you aware of that? And he says, and then he goes on and talks about, for we are indeed his offspring. So he kind of refers to not only is he creator and sustainer, but he's our, he's our father. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or, or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Um, what he's saying here, though, I think it's important. To, oftentimes I'll come across people and say, well, this is how I like to think of God. I like to think of him like this. Almost as if that you're going to make God into your image. No, you're made into God's image. You don't define who God is. God defines who God is. And, and so what he's saying here is you, you can't define God. You are not the one that defines God. We discover God and, and understand who God is based on his terms, on who he is. Otherwise, it becomes what kind of a God? A Stepford kind of God where we pull the string, we get him to do whatever we want him to do. He says, there's no way you can do that. And then he says this, the times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why is that? Repentance is a very positive thing. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Why would he say that? Because he's talked about the, the revelation of creation in our conscience, but guess who showed up here? God, Jesus. How do we know there's a God? He showed up here. 
And guess what? He goes on and he says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's saying, in one of these days, you will give an account of your life and you will stand before God. You will stand before Jesus and give an account of your life. But then he kind of alludes to something that's, that's really wonderful. Because he goes on and he says, by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is he saying there? He's talking about both the first and the second coming. He ended on the first coming, but he talked about the second coming, which is the judgment. But what we know about the cross and about him being raised from the dead is that in his first coming, he came to bear our judgment. The judge came to bear our judgment. But the second coming, he will bring judgment if we reject the judge. It's very clear. And then he ends there. uh, Some of them... Mock him, make fun of him because of the resurrection. Others accept it, believe, and then they invite him back to talk more. And that's the end of the chapter. This is God's word to us this morning. So here's the three questions we're looking at. Oh boy, I can't hardly wait. What is an idol? How can I identify my idols? And then how can I be free from my idols? You'll notice here, first question, what is an idol? Verse 22, you'll notice here he says, in every way you are religious, Everyone is religious. I've had people say, well, it's because you're religious. Well, you are too. Everybody has a belief system. Everybody is religious in some way. And let me expound on that a bit. Notice in verse 23 that we read, he said, objects of worship. That's what basically idolatry is. I, I see your objects of worship. An idol is an object of worship. Exodus 23 where we have the Ten Commandments. How many know what the first of the ten, top ten lists is in the Old Testament? Anybody? You guys are afraid to raise your hand, aren't you? Because he's going to call on us. I know Pastor Ray. He calls on people when we raise our hands, so I better think about this first. You guys know it. You shall have no other gods before me. Did you notice that in that commandment, it doesn't give a third option? In other words, basically what it's saying is that you'll either worship the uncreated God or something in creation, but there's not a third option. Why is that? Because it is impossible for your heart to not adore something. It is impossible for your heart to not worship something. Every one of us here is a worshiper. It's not will we worship, but what will we worship? What will we adore? What will be the object of our worship? That's what the Bible says. And then it goes on. In fact, Martin Luther, one of the dead theologians, back part of the Reformation back in the 1500s, he had something pretty profound to say. And this is what was revolutionary to me as I began to uncover my own issues and problems. And that is that, uh, that the fundamental problem in law-breaking, in other words, when you work through the Ten Commandments, so you go from, you shall have no other gods before me, to no idols, to don't take God's name in vain, to Sabbath, and then it, and then it goes on from there, honor mom and dad, and don't murder, and don't commit adultery, and, and it kind of goes through that list, uh, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. I think I covered most of them for the most part. But, but we do, we typically will do, uh, he actually said, Martin Luther said, that we, we typically, we never break commandments three through ten without first breaking one and two. What he's saying is that the root of all of our issues is that at the moment of, of lying or stealing, for instance, stealing, you stole, why would you steal? Why? Well, because the economy's down and, and, and I needed to try to make a sale and, and so I, I, I forced these people to buy what maybe they shouldn't have bought and I told them, uh, you know, a little bit of a lie, but hey, I've got to provide for my family. And no, 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 no. The reason why you did that is because you don't trust God. You, you have another God. It's you and your ability to make a living and... And you shall have no other gods before me. You don't trust God. Therefore, everything else is symptomatic of that. Oh, well, I had to take this, this extra product home. I need to make ends meet. I need to sell it at the flea market down the street so I can make a little... Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, that, that stealing is wrong and that lying is wrong. But always remember, the, the sin below the sin is idolatry. You don't trust God. And that's what he said. Pretty significant. Pretty important. Romans one twenty five helps us to understand that also is that basically idolatry is what we do is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. Let me give you some fill in the blanks. Here they are. Anything I love, value, trust, or enjoy more than God. That's your first fill in the blank. 
Some of you thought we would never get there. Come on. Here's the next one. Any, anything I add to God as a requirement for my happiness. Anything I add to God as a requirement for my happiness. Now, um, Nancy and I just spent three days with our grandkids. We've got four, and we spent uh, uh, with just three of them. And I am right now terribly sleep-deprived. I'm telling you, we've got a one-year-old, almost a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-year-old. And um, I heard a few times uh, one of the, the three and the four-year-olds say, I don't like you, Grandma. And I said, yeah, I'm right there with you, buddy. I struggle with her, too. No, I didn't say that. Actually, he said that to me, too. There was a few times he said, I don't like you, Grandpa. And it was because we weren't giving him what he wanted. You know, I don't like you, Grandpa. And I said, well, I love you. And uh, what we made sure that we did, although it didn't seem like it helped much, (laughs) we uh, put all the candy away. Typically, when they come over, we just load them up on candy, send them off back to their parents' house and let them run wild for days. Payback. But anyway, uh, I'm kidding. We don't actually do that, but okay, we do a little bit. Okay, I better be honest. Don't lie. Okay, I won't. Um, But this time we put the candy away because we're going to have them for three days. We don't need them bouncing off the walls. Guess what? It didn't help. They still bounced off the walls. And... uh, and so I was up at 2 o'clock this morning getting milk for the four-year-old. I need milk. Get your own milk, dude. I've got to get up and preach two messages. What's wrong with you? Okay, let me go back to the point right here. Anything I add, anything I add to God as a requirement for my happiness. See, you see what's going on here is that we're so like them, aren't we? I don't like you. Because you won't give me what I want. Well, we do that with God all the time. I don't know how many people I've seen defect from the faith because God won't give them what they think that God should give them. And whatever it is, that's their real God. Because if you really understood who God is, all that stuff would go by the wayside. You wouldn't want that stuff if you understood who it is that loves you more than anything. But see, when we begin to bargain with God and do, I don't like you, God. I don't like you. And he's saying, hey, I love you. I know what's in your best interest. I'm giving you what is in your best interest. I'm all loving, wise, in control. Don't you understand that? I don't like you, God. I mean, we're just like that. And what we've done is we've added something to God as a requirement for our happiness. And that thing that we've added is truly our God. We shake our fist at the real God because he won't give us our false God. And so we defect from the real God to chase after our false gods. Here's the next point. Any good thing elevated to a status of an ultimate thing? Okay, think real quick. You can yell them out to me. What are some good things that can be elevated to the status of ultimate things? Anything? Football. Job. Your children. Marriage. Food. Those are all good things. Nothing wrong with them, but when we take a good thing and we we elevate it to an ultimate thing, it becomes a God thing and it becomes a bad thing in our life. Here's the next thing. Any desires beyond the essentials of life that becomes a demand. So, for instance, any desires beyond the essentials of life, such as food, water, air, clothing, shelter, cable TV with NFL red zone package. (laughs) Hey, that's an essential. NFL red zone package? Praise God. How many guys are with me? (laughs) Two of us, man. Yeah, so, no, we're not talking about that, but we're talking about a lot of the essentials, the real essentials. But when it becomes, when desires become demands, typically this is how it works in our mind. If we could get down into our heart, what we're saying to ourselves is something like this. If I can acquire this, if I can have this, if I can attain this, if I can accomplish this, then I know that I have meaning, I have purpose. There's, my life will be secure, my life will be significant, I'll have a sense of, uh, of acceptance, It's a desire. There's nothing wrong with those desires. There's nothing wrong with wanting to climb the corporate ladder. There's nothing wrong with wanting to perform well at at whatever, you know, athletic uh, venture you're in or whatever you're doing. But when, when that becomes a demand, I must do that, that has become an idol and it gets control of your life. Here's the next one. Anything I build my deepest identity on instead of my relationship with God. 
This is big right here. How many have ever seen the movie Seven Days in Utopia? Show of hands. That's a good movie. Did you guys like that movie? It was a great movie. Really a good movie. It's about a, a young man who is driven by his dad to be a professional golfer. And he has this major meltdown out on the course with all the cameras on him. And, and dad is so frustrated. He walks off the course. And so the kid gets in his car. He's really despondent, uh, even depressed, maybe even suicidal. And he's driving, he comes to a fork in the road, and in the fork, it, it kind of points him back to the direction he was going. And, but then there's this road that goes the other way, and it's called Utopia. So he decides to take that road, and he heads into Utopia, and he, he looks off the road or something, crashes his car. And he meets this, uh, an old ex-pro uh, golfer, and it's uh, Robert Duvall. And he begins to help this kid get his head squared away. And, and really the, the essence of the movie really is that he, one of the statements that said is that your purpose and calling go beyond the scoreboard. And that's what he helps this guy to begin to realize, hey, it's not how well you perform out here. That's not your identity. So he kind of helps him kind of recenter really on God for the most part. I think they, they, he probably stopped a little bit short, the writer of the movie, a little bit in some regards, but it kind of certainly pointed people back in the right, right direction. And I, but I like that statement, your purpose and calling go beyond the scoreboard. So if you make your purpose and calling based on your performance, what if your performance doesn't go well? By the way, eventually it won't. Because eventually you're going to get too old to be able to perform at that level. So what are you going to do then? What are you going to do when you retire? What are you going to do with any of that? And that's the point. How many have ever seen the movie that I've referred to from time to time? It's been probably about a year, but Chariots of Fire. It's a great movie. Academy Award winning movie back in the 80s. Some of you weren't alive then. And uh, so you don't even know what I'm talking about, but it's really a great movie. It's about really, there's two characters in that movie, Eric uh, Little and Harold Abrahams, and they were both runners for Great Britain back in the 20s, the Olympics. True story. And what's interesting about the movie is that you have this Harold Abrahams, his whole focus is on his performance, and there's a scene in there where he's getting ready to run in the Olympics, and his uh, trainer is with him, and he makes this statement, he says, I have 10 seconds to prove my, to kind of validate my existence. What was he saying? He's saying, I run for my glory. To where Eric Little, who was a Christian, uh, actually he was a missionary to China who eventually did die in the prison camp there in China. But this is what Eric Little said. He was a runner. He refused to run on Sunday because it was a conviction for him not to do that. And so they, they allowed him to run in another race where he won the gold. And Harold Abrahams won the gold too. But Eric Little, this is what he, his statement, his perspective was this. And this is really important. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. In other words, to where Harold Abrahams was running for his own glory, Eric Little was running for the glory of God. That Whether he won or lost, it was really based on, I'm going to give glory to God regardless of what goes down in my life. And, and that's, the, that's the gospel message. It's not that we perform and then somehow God blesses us. No, God blesses us through the cross, and then out of that fullness of life, then we respond to life. And then no matter what goes down in our life, we can put on display the glory of God. Whether it's good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We can put on the glory of God. We can show the glory of God because God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. And we can be satisfied in Him no matter what's happening. And nothing will satisfy you more than God. There's not, there's not an accomplishment. There's not an acquisition. There's not an achievement out there that can fill your heart. There's nothing in creation, listen to me, nothing in creation that can satisfy you like the creator. And when you find satisfaction in him, you live for his glory. You put him on display. That's, that's the difference. There's a whole list of uh, idols. Uh, in fact, I've got a list here. Let me walk through them. Because... Uh, They, uh, they have really convicted me, and, and I want you to be as miserable as I am. And uh, misery loves company, and so I want you to walk out of here feeling really, really convicted and like, wow, I got all kinds of idols. Yes, you do. Your heart 
is an idol factory, okay? And uh, I didn't just make that up. That's actually from John Calvin, another dead theologian. And so, I mean, our hearts constantly are going after things and anything and everything other than God. But here's a list. There are personal idols, and then there are also social and cultural idols. I'm just going to walk through this. This will be online when you download the message, and you can download the notes. This will be on there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm running out of time, but I want to just knock out some of this for you. Uh, Religion. Religion can be an idol, This sounds crazy, where you're earning and achieving right standing with God. You can do that through rules and rituals and moral conformity. Look at me, I'm basically a good person. So you're trying to appease God? Or right doctrine, confusing non-essentials with essential doctrine, elitism in gifts and ministry, focus on form rather than the function of the church. I know some of that's hard to understand if you're not familiar with the church and religion and all of that. Then there's leisure. Life is about having the right kind of pleasure experience. Hunting, fishing, golfing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but when those things, those good things become ultimate things, that's when they begin to dominate our lives. Workaholism, that's one of mine. Work becomes the thing you live for to be productive and useful or to feel successful and powerful. Here's another one of my idols, codependency. Because you need to feel needed, you stay in unhealthy relationships with perennially uh, needy individuals. Not that my wife is a needy person, but uh, I need to correct that. But it's actually what drove me, as, even as a medic on the fire department, what drove me even as a pastor. I, I want to help people. But it can be almost a, a form of codependency. I become like a rescuer in my life. It can become a form of idolatry. Uh, beauty and image... This this can have various forms, including eating disorders and excessive time, effort, concern about appearance. Also, pornography would fit into that. Romance. This is not the same as pure sexual gratification. You live for crushes or for someone to love you. Family. Big idol in the traditional ranks of America. This idolatry has many variations. Your children's prospects and happiness become the most important thing. Athletics over spiritual well-being. Meeting your parents' expectations become the most important thing. Getting married or having a perfect marriage becomes the most important thing. Money. This idolatry has many variations. Now, let me give you the two. My wife and I operate totally different. This isn't an idol for us, but, but you can see our differences here. Here's mine. Mine is having and saving lots of money may be your security, the main way you feel safe in the world. That's me. I want to save, and I feel safe if I have some money saved away. And so that would mean that my wife was the opposite of that, having and spending lots of money. Maybe the main way of feeling significant and important, nice possessions, car, home, and clothes. She's not quite like that, but she does like to give a lot of money away and, and spend, spend money. Um, perfectionism, that's another one of my idols right there. In general, you live to keep complete control of your life, and you keep pushing the bar, and when you hit that bar, you still feel incomplete. You're perpetually dissatisfied. How many uh, perfectionists do we have in the house? Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. You feel completely, perpetually dissatisfied because just as you hit that, it's not quite enough. And then, and then you've got social and cultural idols. Fascism makes an idol out of one's race or nationality. That's where we get racism. Communism makes an idol out of the state. Government will solve all of our problems. And then you've got populism makes an idol out of public opinion or majority rule rather than what God says is right. Don't you get tired of all the polls they do in our society? I'm like right up to here with all the polls. Hey, let's do another poll. Let's see what the people think. Let's not, Okay. Because we're already confused and messed up. But see, that's very dominant in our society today. How about capitalism? Makes an idol out of the free market. There's nothing wrong with it. But you can make an idol out of that. Like communism, it sees all of our problems as economic ones, all issues in cost-benefit terms, and all things, even people, as commodities. Then there's multiculturalism, makes one ethnic group or culture in absolute value. There are no absolute standards by which to judge, and it creates this hodgepodge of ideas and thoughts. Then the Enlightenment, humanism, makes an idol of reason and scientific investigation. Science has an answer for everything, and reason will open all doors. Then you've got individualism. Makes an idol out of the individual freedom. Nothing must curb the individual's freedom to choose whatever he or she wants to be happy. So you could certainly see some of these idols in our society. And then you've got traditionalism. Makes the family and tradition an idol. Traditional cultures see the rights of individuals as unimportant compared to the name and interest of the family and tribe. Now all of these are a little bit good in balance within reason. But when you elevate it to the ultimate, it becomes a God thing. It's a bad thing. And it creates all sorts of problems. 
How can I identify my idols? Verse 17, so he reasoned, as I stated, it means that he did not simply declare, but he entered into into a give and take dialogue with the people. Now, it's not only important to be able to discern your personal idols, but also your cultural idols. So here's what I'm going to have you do real quick. Just I want you to think about this. What is the cultural idol, the dominant idol here in the, in the Valley of the Sun in Phoenix? Let me give you a couple ideas here as it relates to some of the idols in the big cities of our nation. In New York, they ask, how much does he make? In Boston, they ask, what does he know? So education, intellectualism. In Philadelphia, they ask, what family is he from? In Washington, they ask, what political party is he with? What would they ask in Phoenix? What would they say in Phoenix? What do you guys think? You can yell it out to me if you think you got it. Where do you live? How do you look? Okay. Okay, you guys are all wrong. Okay. I'm kidding. No, those are, those are certainly some. I'm not going to hit all the nuances of this, but there was someone in the first service that yelled it out. They said, how big your pool is. <laughs> and that's kind of right, but it's, it's leisure. Our big God here in the Valley of the Sun is leisure. Look how many days we're heading into our best time of the year. And there's still people out there golfing when it's 115. They're crazy. But people still do it. We still, I mean, if you've got a backyard barbecue, you cool down. We still go up north. We have cabins in the mountain. Nothing wrong with that. But I'd like to know if you do have a cabin in the mountain, I'd like to go sometime. <laughs> I'm kidding. I got to work, okay? But you get to wander off throughout the summer when it's stinking hot down here. And we're down here melting. And you get to go to your cabin in the mountains. Okay. I digress. Sorry. No, there's nothing wrong with any of those. By the way, we do have a number of people that do have cabins in the mountain. And uh, I'd like to borrow it one of these times. I'm kidding. I'm running that one into the ground. Okay, so. But there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But leisure has become. We actually watch our numbers fluctuate because now we started NFL season. Just based on that. I mean, it's really strange. It's bizarre. When the weather gets good, our numbers fluctuate. Backyard barbecues, all these things. That dominates our lives. Leisure. And so... How can you identify the idols within your own heart? If you don't get anything, get this. This will make a major difference as you begin to uncover your own idols. Let's walk through this. Go ahead and put all those up there on the, on the heart here. We've got actions, feelings, thoughts, treasure. I struggled for years trying to address the actions. Ooh, don't do that. I even had people, and a lot of times, I'd, I'd hear pastors talk about the actions. You know, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. And that's not going to change anything. And I used to also, a lot of times, we'll focus on the uh, feelings, our feelings, and then even our thoughts. Ooh, guard your thoughts. It wasn't until I began to understand this right here. My light's not working. Here it is. Treasure. And this is what it tells us in Matthew six twenty one. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Let me unpack each one of these. This is how it works. Your treasure, whatever your treasure is, whatever you treasure controls your heart. So it works like this. Your treasure influences your thoughts, stirs emotions, moves you to action. It works up that way. So your treasure would be anything that you are filling your mind with the beauty and the value of. That's what it means to treasure something. You fill your mind with the beauty and the value of of something. So let's go through a list of things that would help us to identify what this treasure is. What is it that I am treasuring most in my life? Let's first of all look at thoughts. What dominates your thoughts? When your mind is free to think about what it is free to think about, when you're laying in bed at night and you can't go to sleep, where does your mind go? When you're waiting in the doctor's office and you forgot your iPad, your iPhone, and your iPod, okay, and you're stuck there and you're going, oh, what am I going to do now? Where does your mind go? There's a guy by the name of Arch, uh, Archbishop William Temple. It's a quote from Tim Keller. He uses quite regularly. And he says, your religion, your religion is what you do in your solitude. So where does your mind go? What dominates your thoughts? This is what I found when I'm laying in bed at night, and you've heard me say this before, it would go back to work, what I didn't do, what I need to do the next day, and it would go back to brain debates over conversations that I had earlier. What people said, what I said, how I responded, I should have said this, I should have said that. Which told me it's workaholism and it's this codependency issue of people pleasing. Here's the next one, feelings. What stirs my deepest emotions? 
What feelings are inconsolable? This is really important. I need to get this. I know we're running out of time this morning. Thanks for hanging in there with us. But listen to me. If you can understand this, this is what revolutionized my life. This is what changed my life. And understanding my feelings, where my feelings are. Would you agree that if you have a good thing, and let's see that good thing is being threatened. Let's say you're wanting to get married, and then you see that somehow this is this marriage is gonna is being threatened. There's maybe the you know one you're gonna love, you're you're gonna get married to. All of a sudden, there's another lover that comes in there and starts threatening it. Uh, that's a that's a that's a good thing to have a relationship, and you're wanting to get married. But when that threat comes in, it's going to create anxiety. But when that good thing has become an ultimate thing, uh, you're going to be paralyzed. Does that make sense? Can you see the transition? So you go from good thing to ultimate thing. A good thing, when it's being threatened, you're going to be anxious. But when that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're paralyzed. That's when it's moved from good to ultimate. And let's just say that someone, you're, getting, you're going to get married, and they stand you up two weeks before the marriage, before the wedding, and in fact, they run off with another lover, high school sweetheart or something like that, and all of a sudden showed up. And it would be normal. Would you agree that it would be normal that because that's a blocked goal that you should be angry? Would you agree with that? Yeah, you should be angry. But what happens when that anger moves to bitterness and it rips you off the rest of your life and you're angry, Ugh, even maybe homicidal, <laughs> bitter? Well, what has happened is that good thing has, has become an ultimate thing in your life. So it goes from not just anger, and that's part of the the grieving process, but it moves to bitterness, and you can't shake it. In fact, let's take it a step further. Let's just say that that this guy is never coming back, or this gal is never coming back, and you know that. In fact, you even tried to find someone else, and you haven't been able to find anybody else, and you just knew that if you could get married, you would be happy and live happily ever after. And yet you can't. And so certainly you could grieve that, and that's a good thing, and you should grieve it, and you will have sadness. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life, you're going to be depressed and maybe even suicidal. Does that make sense? You guys track it with me? That's when I begin to see my emotions. Man, there were times in my life people would do things to me. I was so bitter. And I began to realize, I began to identify what my idol was, what was being blocked. Or when I become anxious, you know, the finances, oh, the finances of the church, oh, this is an idol for me. You know, when I see the, the finances roller coaster, I'm like, ah, what are we going to do? The numbers are dropping, ah. God's saying, what are you doing? Why are you freaking out? Who are you trusting? So it gives me opportunity to kind of readjust my, my trust in him and look to him. And then, if you thought that was convicting, how about actions? What do I do effortlessly? What do I effortlessly spend my time and money for? What do I have a hard time saying no to? See, for me, there were, for years, it was, it was books. I love books. For my wife, uh, now it's grandkids. Woo, yeah. You just throw money away. Say, hey, come on. What are you doing? I need some of that for books. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So treasure where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. How do you correct this? Two words, repent and rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Repentance is the word that he talked about there in verse 30. He said, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is anger towards sin and sorrow for the pain it causes God. So you've got to begin to look at these idols and there should be an, kind of an anger that would rise up and say, I don't want this idol to interfere with the, the most amazing relationship I have. And that's with God. And, so it, and not only should it create anger within us toward the sin, but also sorrow for the pain it causes God. It's the mixture of those words that I said in verse 16 where his, his spirit was provoked. The Hebrew word is a, a deep mixture of both anger and sorrow. Same word is used to describe God's reaction to idolatry. So our attitude towards idolatry should be both, both uh, anger and sadness. And please forgive me if this applies to you. I know that God can heal you, but it would be a little bit like coming home and finding the one that you had committed your life to in marriage, sleeping with another lover I would be devastating if I came home and found my wife with another lover I would be both angry and broken hearted and yet the Bible uses idolatry and says it's adultery that you are in bed with another lover and God loves you and wanting to draw you back to him 
And so it should create this anger towards the fact that this other lover would draw our hearts away from God, but also this sadness that we trampled on the love and the wisdom of God. We trampled upon the cross of Jesus Christ as he reaches out to us. But you don't stop there. You've got to take it to the rejoicing. Idols cannot be removed but only replaced with something more attractive and beautiful. How do we replace those idols? I can only think of one thing that attractive and beautiful. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is infinitely and eternally satisfying. Jesus Christ is the one in whom we find our deepest pleasure in. And that's why he goes through this, this long description of, of his creator, sustainer, ruler, father, judge. Don't you see who he is? Don't you see who God is? And uh, God so loved us and hates the suffering that we have brought upon ourselves through sin and through idolatry that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. And he would rather die than to lose us for all eternity. And that's what begins to ravish our hearts with his love. To what measure he would go to. To win our hearts back. He came to the cross and died for us. That's amazing. That's totally amazing. And so that's what gets a hold of our hearts. And that's why we want to live our lives for him. I'm going to show you a video clip. It's only a minute and 15. Band's going to come up, end on that big song, Ruin Me. It's a great song. And I'm going to give you three quotes here at the end and we're done. But uh, let me show you this video. This is from Indiana Jones when, when he's reaching out for that gold chalice and you hear his father in his ear to say, hey, let it go, Indy, let it go. That's what the father's whispering in our ears this morning. Watch this. great clip reminding us of what we're talking about here this morning. A couple, ver- uh, couple quotes here. Timothy Keller says, Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested, releasing its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And here's my last one, John Donne, 16th century poet. This is from his poem, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. He says, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Stand with us as we sing this song. Make this song the prayer of your heart this morning. <laughs>